Good morning. Happy Labor Day weekend. Yeah, all right. That's a little bit better. You ready? We're finish up the riches redefined. Let me pray for us and, and we'll get going. Father, thank you for, uh, for your passion uh, for your church and for your kingdom and for your glory. Uh, thank you that on my best day, you still love your church in an infinite amount more than I do. Thank you that you have chosen to build your church. Thank you that you are the one who has begun this church. You are the one who speaks truth to this church. You are the one who transforms this church into the image of your son. You are the one who is glorified by the change and the joy and the transformation that takes place in this church. And in generations to come, you will be the one who is celebrated by this church and by this city, by your grace. So we thank you for the opportunity that we have to come together. Uh, we ask that you speak to us, Lord, in the, in the very few minutes that we have this morning in a way that changes us. We don't want to walk out unchanged. We don't want to walk out the same people that we walked in as. And by your spirit and for your glory, you can make that a reality. So we ask these things, Lord, in the name of your precious son. Amen. Uh, my prayer when we were planning this series, The Riches Redefined, um, my prayer and my hope for us as a church was that God would do uh, an amazing thing and that he would begin to change our taste buds. He would begin to change our spiritual taste buds and, and would wean us away from the taste and the affection that we have for things that are, that are very temporal, things that are very fleeting, um, things that are very shallow, and he would draw us to himself to, to drink from the things that are eternal the things that are deep, the, the things that are true, and the things that are, that are rich, the things that will change us in ways that make an eternal difference in our life. And my dream and my prayer for us is, as we would go through this, that we would become people in an increasing measure who, who treasured the, the riches, the depth and the riches and the realities of the gospel message. And we talked about that being one of the convictions that defines us as a church. And so as we plan the calendar, my prayer was that this would be a time that we would take during the summer to unpack some of those riches with the hope that God would begin to change our taste for them. And that the things that would simply tend to accumulate in our mind as information that we would store and, and information that we could regurgitate and words that we could use and become familiar with would actually begin to renew our, our minds. That it would no longer be just information and, and stale ideas, but our minds would begin to be renewed and they would begin to f- have a joy and a, and a taste for the things of God. And, and it wouldn't just begin to change and, and renew our minds, but that it would descend into our hearts and we would actually feel the affection of God for Christ and we'd actually feel the depth of the reality of what he has done for us in the gospel, that our hearts would actually begin to come alive, that where our hearts may have been cold or frozen over, they would be broken and, and we would begin to be ignited with a, a renewed sense of passion or taste for what God has done for us in Jesus, but that it wouldn't just stop there, but it would begin to work out of our hands into the way that we understood who we were as people and how we lived the lives that he has called us to live and the places that he sent us. That the gospel, the good news of who Jesus is and what he has done for us and the greatness and the glory of God in that would not simply be information and it wouldn't simply be things that we held onto with our heart, but it would change us from the inside out and it would redefine how we understood who we were. And it would transform how we understood the way that we were to live the life that God has called us to live. And my prayer was that in an increasing measure, this would begin to take place. And and so we went about unpacking what we called the riches 
of the gospel. Paul often calls the gospel the, the blessings or the riches of glory, of the glory of God in Christ Jesus. And so we begin to see what are these riches that God has given us in the gospel and how do they change the way we understand what's valuable to us in this, in this life. And, and we built this simply off one very strong biblical principle that we beat like a drum around here. I mean, if you've been here for any length of time, in some way, shape, form, or fashion, you've heard me or someone else talk about the fact that what our heart treasures directs our behavior. What we treasure with our heart begins to direct the way we live our life because we will simply pursue with our life the things that we value most in our hearts. So if we're actually going to get after living a life that reflects the glory of God, what God is after is not changing the things that we do around us per se, but changing our heart, the motivation, the the driving force behind the way that we live and the reason that we do the things that we do. And so we, we believe strongly and we beat like a drum often the reality that God is after changing us in the midst of the circumstances we find ourselves in before he's after changing all the things around us. And so we believe that if, if we could unpack the gospel and the good news and the glory of God in the face of Jesus in a way that challenged the things that we often treasure with our hearts, the things that we often give ourselves to and pursue in this life, if we could challenge those things and redefine them the way that God has defined them in the gospel, we could begin to see this affection, this change of taste take place. And so I'll give you a couple of examples. We started in the beginning um, talking about our general pursuit of security. All of us do it. All of us, to some degree or another, value or treasure the idea of security. For some of us, we chase it in a relationship. For others, we chase it in a job. For others, when we get the house on the hill or the certain car or, or, or the certain school or we achieve the certain award, then we'll know that we'll actually be secure. When our bank account hits a certain baseline, then we can take our foot off the accelerator, put it in cruise control, and feel safe. But the reality of it is none of those things ever come to pass because all of those things ultimately are changing and fleeting. And so we spend our lives and we pursue with our hearts and with all that we are things that can never bring us what we're actually looking for, the security that our hearts are longing for and we're pursuing with all that we are. And so we talked about how the gospel, the good news of who Jesus was in its calling of us, rooted before the creation of all things that are grounded in God's eternal love provides a security. We talked about what it means to be called by God, the effectual calling of God, and how that provides for us a foundation that can never be shaken, that can never be taken away, that can never crumble. And from there, we, we said, okay, well, if we all pursue security and, and we find it in these particular things or we chase it in these particular things and it never actually comes to pass here, but God has redefined what real security is in here, in his calling of us that can never be revoked or taken away, what other things do we pursue with our hearts? What other treasures do our hearts seem to wrap themselves around and hold tightly to? And we began to talk about status. Well, that's a big one. To some degree or another, all of us chase some kind of status with other people, some kind of measure of acceptance with other people. I mean, whether we, whether we wear our hair a certain way or our clothes a certain way or, or do certain things, the, the, the list is endless. The ways in which we pursue acceptance with other people and to define ourselves by a certain status is, is endless. It's as infinite as the number of people that there are in here. But the reality of it is our hearts go after it. Our hearts long for that kind of acceptance. And when we begin to unpack the ways that our hearts tend to long and tend to chase after this one thing, we begin then to unpack the gospel and the riches of the gospel and the blessings of God in Christ in a way that began to redefine the kind of status that we were after and where that status can really be found. 
We talked about propitiation. We talked about that before God, we were actually under the justice of God and deserving the judgment of God because of our sin. But in his wisdom and in his glory, God actually took on himself in Jesus the punishment that was due to us for sin. That because he exhausted the wrath of God on himself on the cross, we actually stand before God forgiven. We actually stand before God forgiven. Where before our status before God was one condemned, one condemned to judgment, our status that can never be taken away, the status that can never change with the latest fad, with the latest cultural trend, with the latest change in address or, or account, it can never be taken away. That because of God in Christ, we're actually forgiven. You are actually forgiven. And from there, we talked about the big word expiation. The idea that we're not just forgiven because of what God has done for Jesus and we stand before God forgiven, but that our sin leaves a, a mark or a stain upon our soul. And though God may forgive us of our sin, we're still left with the record of that sin before him and the mark of that sin on us. But in his sacrifice, Jesus not only exhausted God's wrath in our place, but he actually took our sin upon him. And we looked at the ways in which the Bible describes how Jesus in his body carried that sin away from the presence of God. And our sin is no longer standing before God, judging us or condemning us before God, but it is gone. And not only is the record of our sin gone from the presence of God and God see us in the perfect righteousness or obedience of Jesus, but the marks of the sin, the shame, the fear that keeps us separated from God and running from God and afraid to come before God and keeps us separated from one another out of fear of what other people would think if they actually knew who I, who I was, the marks of the sin and the shame has left on our body has been removed along with the sin itself. That God has not only forgiven us because of Jesus and we stand forgiven before him, but because of his expiation, his expiating work, we actually stand before God cleansed. A status that can never be taken away. It can never be revoked. It can never actually be changed. But if that wasn't enough, he, he didn't just forgive us and he hasn't just cleansed us, we went on to say that we still needed to stand accepted before God. It's great to be forgiven. It was great to be cleansed, but we looked at justification and how God has not only cleansed us and forgiven us and taken the sin away, but then he has given us Jesus' perfect obedience in our place so that God doesn't look at us and accept us in his presence based on our ability to do the things that he has called us to do or to live a particular way or to earn a particular reward from him. He actually takes what Jesus has done in his life of perfect worship and perfect obedience and perfect sacrifice and he gives that to us so that now when God looks at us, not only are we forgiven, not only are we cleansed, but we are now accepted before God because of who Jesus is and what he's done. Justification, a status that can never ever be revoked, ever be changed. And if that wasn't enough, forgiven, cleansed, accepted, we talked about redemption. This beautiful idea that before our souls collided with Christ and our hearts began to trust him for who he is and what he has done, we were actually enslaved to sin. Our souls were actually in a, in a, in a sort of slavery to our sinful desires and, and that we did exactly what our hearts wanted to do and they were enslaved to do the things that God did not call us to do. But thanks be to God, Jesus did not only forgive us and cleanse us and accept us because of what he's done, but he came and in his resurrection from the dead, he defeated our greatest enemies that held us in slavery, sin, Satan, and death. And because of Jesus, we are actually free. 
we're actually free to live the life that God has called us to live that brings us the greatest joy and Him the greatest glory. We actually have a freedom in this life right now. Forgiven, cleansed, accepted, free. All of those things God has done for us through Jesus and saved us from what was due to ourselves because of our sin. But He didn't just save us from all those things. The last time I was here, we talked about the next one adoption. Oh my goodness. I wish we could go back and finish that one. I think I left that one a little bit short. We weren't just saved from our sin. As great as it would be for God to forgive us and and cleanse us and accept us and then set us free to live, he didn't just set us free to live according to ourselves and by ourselves. He actually set us free to live to him. He actually saved us from him to live for him and with him. And in this beautiful idea of adoption, God has actually taken us to himself and he has called us his own children. And in that, we have all of the rights and privileges that come with being the children of God and we are co-heirs. Brothers and sisters with Jesus Christ himself, unbelievable, unbelievable, a status that can never be revoked. It can never be changed. It is not subject to the winds of change and culture and public opinion. This is what God says about who we are because of who he is. You are forgiven, you are cleansed, you are free, you are accepted, and you are adopted by God and called his children. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. And our hearts are so prone to pursue this kind of status and this kind of security and so many other things that can never really provide it. And so we took the time to try to unpack it. How does the gospel redefine the things that our hearts long for with the hope and the prayer that God would begin to break the hardness of our hearts and change the tastes of our soul that we might find those things worth having? That we might find the gospel, the good news of who Jesus is for us, more sweet than the fleeting promises and pleasures of the time that we live and the things that can never actually deliver what it is we actually want. So where are we going to go this week? If that is who God has said we are, that is the security and the status that we have, that is how he sees us in Christ when our souls begin to trust in the work of God for us through Jesus, when we begin to treasure the riches of the gospel, this is how God begins to see us forgiven, accepted, cleansed, free, and adopted. That is the state of our status before God. But our condition is one of still maturing. All of those things are are events that happened at a definite time in the past, on the cross, and when we begin to believe and trust with our heart what God has said about Jesus and the riches of the gospel, we become justified, made right, adopted, renewed, redeemed, forgiven in that moment. But yet, those things have been declared about us, but now they've actually got to be worked out in our life. They've actually got to begin to take shape in the way that we live. 
Those things actually, actually have to take root into our soul and be woven through the fabric of our life and the fabric of our heart and the fabric of our taste and then lived out through the ways that we spend our time, the ways that we spend our money, the way that we think about who we are, the way that we live our lives with other people and the process of working out the implications of the gospel, the, con- the, the, the process of working out who we have been declared to be and then living that out in our life right now is a process that people call sanctification. They actually call it sanctification. Now, for some of you, let me just clarify this. This whole series has not been an excuse to try to teach you particular words. We have it, I mean, we'd not sit down and look at the calendar and think, how can we actually you know, work into the vocabulary of the church justification, propitiation, expiation, redemption, regeneration, adoption, sanctification? How can we get people to taste these words like vegetables that I got to get my son to eat and grind them up and stick them in things? And that wasn't the goal of this at all. The goal was not to get you to know some religious words. And in fact, all of those words, all those words from effectual calling or election through what we're talking about today, sanctification, they're actually anti-religious words. They're not religious words at all. They're actually anti-religious words. All of those ideas and all of those aspects of the gospel point to what we cannot do and what God has to do for us through Jesus. All of the ways that we cannot make ourselves right before him and all the ways that he has made us right before him that we could be reconciled to him. All of the religious ideas in the world, no matter what philosophy or religion you're talking about, paint a picture that we have to do particular things to try to earn our standing before God. These words actually portray the reality that we can never do that. They're anti-religious words. There's nothing religious about them. Get that idea out of your brain. All these big $5 words that people talk about when they read about Jesus but never really actually know him, like we do celebrities, you know? I'm bad about that with celebrities. I'll, I'll talk about, you know, Kobe or, or Ronaldo or all these guys like I know them because I read all these things about them, but I don't actually know them. Never actually met them. Never actually been on a field with Ronaldo. I'd probably be ashamed to be on a field with Ronaldo. We tend to do that with Jesus. We tend to read about him, study things about him, gain information about him, learn these words about who he is and what he's done, but we never actually know him. The point of all this was that we would begin to to know him in his fullness and in his greatness, and it would begin to change us. So it wasn't an effort to get you to know all these religious words. It's it's an effort that you would know him, that you would begin to taste him. So this morning, we're going to take some time. We're going to unpack sanctification. There's a definition I've got for you up there. Let's read it together. Sanctification is a progressive work of God and man that makes us more and more free from sin and like Christ in our actual lives. Sanctification is a progressive work of God and man that makes us more and more like Christ, free from sin in our actual lives. So with all the things we've talked about so far from justification and propitiation and expiation and redemption and adoption, we must rely on what Christ has done for us on the cross. In sanctification, we actually must rely on Christ to work in us by his Holy Spirit. See the difference? All the things that we've talked about so far, we actually have to rely on what Christ has done for us on the cross. These are objective things that have been said about us and changed in our status before God. Now with sanctification, this progressive work of God and man together, we actually have to rely on what Christ has done in the cross to work through us by his Holy Spirit. 
See the difference? Ezekiel 36. Let me give you a little bit more about this. Is that going to come up there? Oh, look at that. I gave you the slide. Ezekiel 36. Here's where, here's where this idea and this process of, of transformation and change actually starts. God promises it back in the Old Testament. Here's what he says. I, if, you, if you've got your Bibles and you go to Ezekiel 36, I want you to circle I in there every time you see it. This is talking about God. He says, I will give you a new heart and I will put a new spirit within you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move, move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep all of my laws. Notice the radical change that has taken place and the promise of what will take place. Notice what God has promised to do and then what God promises to continue to do for us. There was a heart of stone. Our, our hearts were hardened to the realities of who God was. Our hearts were hard to the grace of God in Christ. Our hearts were hard to the spiritual things of God and the taste of God's rescuing us. And we were bent for rescuing ourselves. We were bent for being our own saviors. We were bent to fixing ourselves. We were bent to empowering ourselves. Our hearts were hard to the reality of who God was. And he takes this heart of stone out and he begins to give us, he puts in us a heart of flesh, a heart that's sensitive to the realities of who he is, a heart that has a taste for what he has done, a heart that has a desire for the person and the work of, of Jesus Christ. And God promises then to not only give us that new heart that's receptive to who he is and has a taste for who he is, but he promises then to give us his spirit he promises then to put in us not only a new heart, but his spirit to enable us to actually live the life that he calls us to live. That's where it actually starts. Sanctification has a definitive beginning. It begins when our souls collide with Christ and we begin to trust him for who he is and we're justified and regenerated and adopted and we understand the realities of the, what he did for us on the cross and we are sanctified at that moment in the sense that, that hard heart is taken out and a new heart of flesh is put in, and the presence of his spirit is with us. We, we have been sanctified. We have been transformed. Paul said we are actually new creations because of what God has done for us in Jesus. There is a beginning, and there's an end. There's a goal to this process. There's an end in mind with this process. I don't think I gave you this on a slide because it's too long. Let me read you what it looks like to get to the end. Revelation chapter 7. Don't get scared. Revelation, don't get scared. We'll keep the barcodes for another week. Revelation 7, 9. Jesus' best friend, John, he said, After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and they were crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on a throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures and they fell on their faces before the throne and they worshiped God. And this is what they said. They proclaimed, look at the exclamation point, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. And then one of the elders with me saying, who are these clothed in white robes and where have they come? I said to him, sir, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones that have come out of the great tribulation. They've washed their robes and they've made them white in the blood of the lamb. And therefore, because of that, they're before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence and they shall hunger no more, thirst no more. The sun, the sun shall not strike them nor any scorching heat. 
For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. What's the end of this process? What's the end of what God began in calling us to himself and giving us a new heart and giving us his spirit? The end is that we will stand in his presence, transformed into his likeness, worshiping him for all of eternity in his presence for what he has done. We notice what we will be singing for all of eternity. For all of eternity, we won't be celebrating all the great things that we did here. All the things that we seem to throw parties for and gather for here, all the accomplishments that we do that we want to celebrate in this place and in this time, when we see him like he is and we are transformed into his image for all of eternity, we won't be singing about your new job. We won't be singing about your promotion. We won't be singing about your accomplishments on the field. For all of eternity, we will stand before God, having been transformed into his likeness, and we will be singing about the glories of the riches of the gospel. To him be might, to him be power, to him be glory, because he did what we could not do. That is what we will be singing about and celebrating. In the end, from the start, when he gives us a new heart that longs for who he is to be changed into his image, we will find ourselves for eternity celebrating what he has done to get us there. And when we see him, John said, we will actually be made like him. The end of this whole process is Christ's likeness is being created and recreated into the image of Christ himself. Now, that's where it starts and that's where it ends. And if you're honest, right now where we live in between the beginning and the end, we are probably less Revelation 7. I don't know, maybe some of you came out of the womb singing and celebrating glory to God, Hosanna on high. In the time in between, we're probably less Revelation 7 and probably a whole lot more Romans 7. Some of you laugh, you know what Romans 7 says. Listen to what Paul said. Romans 7, start probably in verse 15. I didn't put it up on the screen, don't wait for it. This is what Paul says. He says, right now, between what God has done to make me new and what God will do to make me into his image for all of eternity, right now, I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want but I do the very thing I hate. And if I do what I don't want, I agree with the law that it is good, but so it's no longer I who do it, but sin that's within me. For I know that nothing good dwells within me, that is, in my flesh, for I have a desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the, thing I, the good thing I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing." Now, if I do what I do not want, it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God and my inner being, but I see that in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells within my members. Wretched, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? On this side of eternity... In all reality, we are far less Revelation 7 and far more prone to be characterized by Romans 7. We find ourselves torn between wanting to do what we know we are called to do, wanting to do what we know is right, what we know will bring God glory, what we know will honor him, but yet finding ourselves constantly facing the fact that we continue to do what we know we really don't want to do. 
mean, I, I know that God has called me to love my wife the way that he has loved the church. I know that he has given me the capacity to do that and he has changed my heart and he has given me a heart of flesh and no longer a heart of stone and a heart that wants to do what he has called me to do and he's given me his spirit that I might be enabled to do the very thing that he has called me to do and I want to do that. I want to love her. I want to serve her. I want to honor her the way that he has loved and served the church. But at the end of the day, when... I close my eyes if the video plays in my mind when I'm trying to go to sleep. My wife is probably far more characterized that day by trying to figure out how she can serve me, how I can get her to do what I want her to do, or how I can get her to do in some sideways way what will bring me what I think was the most joy or the most comfort or the most pleasure. I'm, I'm more often than I care to be far more characterized by trying to figure out how to get her to love and serve me than I am about loving and serving her the way that Christ has loved and served the church. I, I know what I want to do. I have a passion to do. I know what God has called me to do, but more often than not, I'm torn in this wretched desire to continue to do what I know I shouldn't do. And I know that God has called me as a dad to raise my children in the fear and admonition of the Lord in a way that they begin to see the glory of God in everything in life. And Paul said explicitly not to exasperate them. I mean, this is what gets me all the time. I know that God has called me and has given me the capacity to be the kind of dad that raises his children to see his glory and to see his reign, to see his rule over all things in life, to see all of life new because of Jesus and to not exasperate them. Literally, that word says to not take the wind out of their sails, but more often than not, if I look at the way that I tend to interact with my son, I'm far more concerned about trying to get what I want out of him or to get him to be a particular way so that I look a particular way to particular people that I want a security or a status with that I end up exasperating him. I end up taking the wind out of his sails and life with me can be far less about a relationship of, of trust and of love and of security and of peace that compels him to obey me because he trusts me because he loves me and he believes that I actually have what's best for him. It's far more about being somebody that I want him to be so that I look a particular way. And relationship with dad sometimes, more often than I care, is less about that kind of love and trust and relationship and more about exasperation of trying to do what he can't seem to do to please dad because dad keeps getting frustrated. I know what I'm called to do. We, we have a desire, a new heart, a heart that longs for the things of God, a heart that wants to live the way that God has called us to live, but yet in between the beginning and in between the end, we find ourselves in the middle in a battle waging within our souls to actually live out what we have been declared to be. A process of sanctification, a process of transformation, a process of becoming in function, a process of becoming in the way that we live what God has declared us to be already because of the gospel. A process of living in the freedom that God has called us to live in. A process of living a life as a, as a child that he has actually declared us to be. A process of living a life free from guilt and condemnation. A, a life that would absolutely transform the way that we live with other people and reflect the greatness of who God is. We are in a battle to actually become and live out what God has declared us to be. That process is, is called sanctification. In between the beginning and the new heart, in the renewed mind and the spirit in the end, when we're transformed into his image, we live in the midst of this process. If you've got your Bibles, go to 2 Corinthians 3. This is where we'll, we'll dwell for the last little bit of time. We find ourselves in this process, and of all the places we could go in the Bible, I absolutely love the way that Paul talks about this process in 2 Corinthians 3. And I love what's on your bulletin, this quote from Martin Luther. Martin Luther. 
He said, this life, this life, the life we live right now, is not righteousness, but growth in righteousness. It's not health, but healing. It's not being, but becoming. It's not rest, but exercise. We are not yet what we shall be, but we are growing toward it. The process is not yet finished, but it's going on. This is not the end, but it is the road. All does not yet gleam in glory, but all is being purified. This life right now is about a process of sanctification, a process of being transformed into what we have already been declared to be. And one of the most crippling things that has hurt the church, one of the most crippling things that hurts our lives individually is this disease. I can't remember who actually coined it or I'd give them the credit. I didn't come up with it, but it's this disease that they call just-itis. Just-itis. The church has gotten caught up, not in the gospel, not in what God has declared to be the process that he takes us on where we delight in who he is and what he has done and we depend on him to become what he has called us to be for this process where we have tried to find the quickest, easiest, most efficient way to get where we want to go. Just do this, just do this, just read this, just pray this, just come to this, just declare this, just believe this, just do this, then you'll be okay. And it's destroyed the church. We have not unpacked the character and the grace of the gospel to such a way that we have developed any kind of robust or deep understanding of long-term, gradual, effective change that transforms us from the inside out. We have looked around and we figured if we can make food that can be done in a minute and a half, then I can become a perfect person in about a week. And our bookstores are lined with a million different ways, the Christian bookstores, lined with a million different ways that if we could just do these things and just do this, just, 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 then we would be okay. And we've crippled the reality of the process of God changing us into his image because of the gospel and living a life of dependence that brings him glory. And we've majored in trying to figure out processes that bring us some kind of empowerment or or glory or satisfaction by doing particular things. And it's crippled us. Because when those things don't work without any kind of robust, deep understanding of change, we're left in this giant vacuum. When all the things that we try don't work and we don't understand how God changes us in the process that he's taken us on, when we find ourselves still stuck in the same sin with the same patterns, hurting the same people and doing the same things, all we can do is throw our hands up and say, this is just the way I am. This is just me. I'm Irish. I got a temper. This is just me. I'm Italian and I'm loud. This is just me. God will change me in the end without any robust understanding of how God changes us, we're left in a vacuum that is rapidly filled with very empty and hollow ideas of change and transformation. So let's see what Paul says. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. I love this. Man, why does the time go so fast? Maybe it's because I talk so much. 2 Corinthians three eighteen, And we all, Paul is talking about himself, And the church, he's writing to the church in Corinth. We all, not you, not me, we, we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed. Let me me stop there because I want you to get this. Don't walk away with anything. You'll walk away with this picture. We all, with unveiled face, are being transformed. That word transformed, we've talked about this before. I, I mean, we'll beat this sanctification drum to death of this church. We've talked about this idea of transformed before. The word behind that, do you know what it is? Do you remember? The word behind this word transformed, the Greek word is metamorphomai. It's the word that we get metamorphosis from. Paul takes this picture that he understands in nature where this squiggly, fuzzy, furry thing crawls up on a leaf and 
somehow or another spins some kind of shell around him in a cocoon and in a certain period of time later blows out of that thing this brilliant, beautiful, glorious, colorful butterfly. So what in the world is the process that takes this caterpillar, this fuzzy, leaf-eating, squiggly thing, and turns it into this unbelievably glorious flying creature, this butterfly? Paul said, what in the world is this this process that takes a murderous, zealous Pharisee hell-bent on destroying the church of Jesus Christ, known for pursuing with passion and zeal people who believe in Jesus and finding ways to take them away from their family, lock them up in prison, be a part of the process of exterminating the people who are a part of Jesus' church? What process actually takes a zealous religious Pharisee like that and turns him into the man writing this letter? I mean, what process actually takes a man like the Apostle Paul hell-bent on destroying the church into becoming the apostles of the Gentiles. The man who writes 75% of the New Testament. This is what he's talking about. There is a process that we all are in. He's in, has been in, we're in, have been in, and still are in where we are being transformed. Something about us is being changed. It's being made new. It's being recreated. Don't miss this. You walk out of anything, you'll walk out of here with a picture of the butterfly. Metamorphosis. There's this transformation into what? And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. We've already talked about that. I won't beat that over the drum. Here's what God is doing. He is changing us and he's recreating us. He's making us new into the image of Christ himself. 1 John 3, 2 says that when we see him, we will be made like him. We will actually be made like him. There is this day when we will stand before God and we will see him face to face. We will be able to stand in his glory because of what he has done for us in the gospel. And when we see him, we will be made like him. That end of Revelation 7 will be a reality. We will be finally the people that he has called us to be. We will be transformed into his image. But right now, how do we know what that's like? How do we actually know right now if we are being transformed, if we are being made new into the likeness and the image of Christ? Well, you've got to know what Jesus was like, and I won't take you through a lot of scriptures. We don't have time, but I'll take you to this one because I like this one. John 6, 38. You want to know what Jesus was like? You want to know if you're being gradually transformed into his image? This is what Jesus said. These are red letters in your Bible. He said this, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. So how do you know if you're being transformed to the image and likeness of Jesus? Well, here's what Jesus was like. Jesus submitted himself to the will of the Father, condescended himself, came to earth, took on the body of a man, lived the life that we were created to live, died to pay the price for the life that we live instead. We go over it all the time, and here's what he said. He said, I have come not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. The goal for Jesus' life was to do the will of the Father, a will of the Father that climaxed with him laying his life down on the cross for our sins, paying the ultimate price for our rebellion against God. To be conformed into Jesus' image and likeness, to be transformed into his image and likeness is not to simply quit doing certain things, saying certain things, watching certain things, whatever it may be that you've got in your brain. Being conformed to the image of likeness of Christ is not about figuring out what Jesus would do in all these given circumstances. It's about having your heart and your desires changed that you begin to live to do the will of the Father, to seek the will and the glory of God with all that you are. 
In fact, Psalm 40, I think verse 8, says about Jesus that not only did Jesus come to do the will of the Father, not only did he say, this is what I've come to do, Psalm 40, I think it's verse 8, says that Jesus actually delighted, delighted to do the will of the Father. Delighted for the joy that was set before him, Paul said, he endured the cross, despising the shame and suffering. He delighted to do what God had called him to do. It wasn't begrudging. It wasn't white-knuckled, gritted teeth, try as hard as I can to do what God wants me to do and, and then everything will be okay. Jesus delighted to do the will of the Father. Paul put it this way for us, 2 Corinthians 5. Flip over a couple pages. I love this. You don't have to go there. He says this, the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all and therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Transformation, sanctification, maturation, it's the process of living less and less for yourself and more and more for him who for your sake died and was raised. You want to be transformed to the image and likeness of Jesus? Am I being transformed to the image and likeness of Jesus? That process looks like this. I'm living less and less and less for myself, less and less and less for my desires and my wants and my will, and more and more and more for the one who for my sake gave himself up and died on the cross in my place for my sins. That's the process, being changed into the image and likeness of Jesus. How does it actually happen? Here's the, here's the fun part. Back right, to our definition. Sanctification is a, progress, is a progressive work of God and man that makes us more and more free from sin and like Christ in our actual lives. So sanctification is this progressive ongoing work of God and man that produces this transformation where we live less and less for ourselves and more and more for the will and glory of God. Some people get really skittish about talking about this. Some people get really skittish about this unbelievably beautiful and brilliant divine cooperation with us in what we do. Some people fear that if we talk about this the way that the Bible actually portrays it, we'll have a tendency to elevate our work to a primary role and, and denigrate God's work in us to a secondary role. And I think if we understand what the Bible is saying as a whole, in particular what Paul's saying in this little passage, we can get to see that's not actually the case. Understanding sacred sanctification as this beautifully orchestrated cooperation between God, the Holy Spirit, and us is not, does not in any way devalue the work of God in our hearts. It doesn't say that we have an equal role. It doesn't even say we do the same things. It says that we cooperate with the Holy Spirit of God in our life in a way that's appropriate being creatures created in his image. Here's what Paul says. Look, go back to 2 Corinthians 3. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, there's something that we're doing. There's something that we're doing. Paul says, here's what we're doing. We're beholding the glory of the Lord. Now the tendency is going to be to read, to read the next piece and are being transformed in the same image from one degree of glory to another. And go, okay, here's what I have to do to be transformed in the image of God. I've got to behold the glory of the Lord. When I do this, then this will happen. That's not the end of what Paul says. Paul backs that up by saying, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So here's something I'm doing. I'm beholding the glory of the Lord, and we'll talk about that in a minute because that changes everything about understanding what we actually have to do. And I'm being transformed in the image and likeness of Christ, but that is happening because of the Lord who is the Spirit. 
So the spirit in us that God placed in us when he transformed our hearts, the fulfillment of the promise that God gave us in his, way back in Ezekiel and was accomplished on the cross by Jesus' life and death, he then fulfills that promise in giving us a new heart and placing the spirit within us and the spirit is actually working within us to transform us into the image and likeness of God and we are working by the spirit's enablement with him to be conformed into the image of God. We have a tendency to read this verse and say, when I do this, this is what happens. But Paul says, no, this is what God does in you by the Holy Spirit. He enables you to join him in this process of being transformed into his likeness. Don't miss this. If I could boil this thing down to to one place where I think we tend to miss this, um, where I've missed this, where I have devalued this process and this this idea of being transformed in this life, being changed right now, real change, real hope, real transformation, real maturation, real sanctification right now in this life where I have failed to miss that in my life and continue to fail to miss it is because I tend to forget that it's God at work in me by his Holy Spirit working this out in my life, enabling me to do what he has called me to do to work with him to be transformed in his image. I think The church, even the charismatic church, has tended to devalue the work of God the Holy Spirit in our life, conforming us into the image of Christ. But the beauty of what the charismatic church has done in bringing the person of of God the Holy Spirit back into the focus to to bringing the whole trinity back into picture where other aspects of the church have tended to focus on the Father and others tend to focus on the work of the Son and we tend to as a collective forget the work of God the Holy Spirit and they've brought him back in here. They've tended to put him back in here in a place that isn't his primary role. We tend to focus on other work and aspects of the Holy Spirit, forgetting that one of his chief roles is is to transform us right here, right now, to work in us, to enable us to do what God has called us to do. Don't miss the very Holy Spirit of God that raised Jesus from the dead. The very Spirit of God that raised Jesus from the dead and exalted him to the right hand of God the Father now lives in you, works in you. I, I was baffled by this. I've read a few places recently where it talked about the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the life of Jesus. And and it's funny, of all the things I've read and all the things I've studied, it's only been in the last four months that I've actually seen multiple people, multiple works, multiple books talk about this. I don't know where I missed it. I, I don't know what I was reading for years before, but listen to what, a snapshot, just the book of Luke, a snapshot of what the ministry of the Holy Spirit has done in the life of Jesus himself. It was the Holy Spirit who worked in the birth and the incarnation of Jesus. It was the Holy Spirit, the Bible says, who equipped Jesus for ministry. It was the Holy Spirit who filled Jesus with joy. It was the Holy Spirit that enabled Jesus to resist temptation. It was the Holy Spirit that that taught and matured Jesus in wisdom and knowledge. It was by the Holy Spirit that Jesus performed miracles and drove out demons. And it was by the Holy Spirit alone that raised Jesus from the dead. It's actually impossible to understand the person, work, and ministry of Jesus apart from the empowering work of the Holy Spirit in the life of Jesus. It's actually impossible to understand the work of Jesus and the miracles of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus and what God called him to be in this life without understanding the role of the Holy Spirit in enabling and working with Jesus to do what God had called him to do. But yet we think about becoming who God has called us to be, living the life that God has called us to live apart from the power and the work of the Holy Spirit in our life. Somehow for another, Jesus was dependent upon the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit worked in the life of Jesus all the way down to helping him and enabling him and strengthening him to resist temptation and the attacks of the enemy. But yet we can live our life 
and face the temptations that we face and the struggles that we face and the difficulties that we face and try to figure them out and face them and change and go through them by the power that we find within ourselves and our own ability. It's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. One of the beauties of the the riches of the idea of sanctification is that God has fulfilled for us the promise that he gave us and he has placed in us his spirit that we could do what he has called us to do and he has enabled us to do the things and live the life that he has called us to live. Now here's the thing. We're We're gonna fly down and end on this one. The danger with talking about this, the danger with talking about the power and the role of the Holy Spirit and conforming us into the image of Christ, working in us, is that there's a whole group of people we can split it right down the middle and this side will say, great. God will do it. I got an anger problem. Well, the Holy Spirit will fix it. I treat my wife like dirt. Holy Spirit will change me. I do this or I've got this or God's calling me to this. Huh? The Holy Spirit will do it. We, we have this passivity that comes that says, you know what, if the Holy Spirit and the power of God is working within me to conform me into the image and likeness of Christ, I'll just sit back and I'll relax and, and when he gets his job done, then everybody will be happy and everybody will be better. And the reality of it is the Holy Spirit never does anything for us. He enables us to do the things that God's called us to do. We're still the ones that have to love our, life, our wife the way that Christ has loved the church. We're still the ones that have to love others with compassion and long-suffering and patience. We're still the ones that have to do the things that God has called us to do, but it's the Holy Spirit at work in us that enables us to do the things that God has called us to do, but we're the ones that actually have to do it. We're the ones that actually have to live this particular way. He's the one that actually enables us to do it. But here's the flip side of the argument. This side over here, this side of the church tends to think, okay, the the Holy Spirit's at work in me, that's great, but I've got to do all these particular things. And the tendency is we tend to think about all the things that God has called us to do and all the, all the things that God speaks about in Scripture that nurture and cultivate and, and mature our soul and reading the Bible and prayer and memorizing Scripture and community, all the spiritual disciplines and solitude and fasting and feasting and community and all the things that God has called us to do and promised us will help develop the life of God in our soul and mature us into his image. And we tend to take all these things and we put all of our hope in our doing these things, failing to remember that it's God the Holy Spirit that actually enables us to do these things and brings life to these things. Think about it. It's what Paul was talking about in, to the Corinthians when he said that in relation to the church, there are some people who God has called to water, some people who God has called to plant. There are some pastors that God has equipped to preach the gospel. Nobody gets saved. Other people come, preach the gospel, and all of his work of sowing and planting and watering that people with the gospel reap an unbelievable harvest that God has ordained. That some do this and some do this and some do this, but ultimately it's God that actually causes that thing to grow. That there are people who sow, people who reap, but God brings the growth. The same thing happens in our life. It would be a transformation to the image of Christ. There are things that God has called us to do. There are disciplines that God has given us that cultivate in our soul a taste for the gospel and a taste for the reality of God that weed the things out of our hearts. There's repentance and confession in the Bible and understanding who God is as he's presented himself and surrendering ourselves to it and memorizing it and meditating on it that it might become sweet to our mouth and sweet to our soul. There's community that we strive to live in that we could live honestly and openly and authentically before one another and God using people in our lives to shape us and change us. There's all kinds of things that God has called us to do, but we don't believe that those things are what actually bring the maturation and the growth. We do those things with the understanding that God in us through the Holy Spirit is enabling us to do those things. There are things that we do just like a farmer. We've got to plant. We've got to sow. We've got to water. We've got to cultivate. We've got to weed, but we do that with the knowledge that it's God at work in us who actually brings the growth into our lives. 
It's God the Holy Spirit who actually brings the power for transformation in our soul, in our life. So what do we do? We're going to end with this. Here's what Paul says we do. Doesn't give us a list of a million things. Doesn't tell us a whole system of behavior. I love what he points to because it points back to everything that we talked about. Here's what he actually says. We, with unveiled face, behold that. We, with unveiled face, behold the glory of the Lord. This is what we do. You want to know what your chief responsibility is in the process of sanctification and maturation? You want to know what the chief discipline is that you are to commit yourself to, enable by the power of the Holy Spirit that will bring transformation to the likeness of Christ? This is what Paul says. When we do this, enabled by the work of the Holy Spirit, when we behold the glory of the Lord, enabled by the work and the power of the Holy Spirit, we will be transformed into his likeness and image. The glory of the Lord is simply this. Let me give you a definition and then how it works. The glory of God is simply his his attributes, his character, and his perfection manifested in who he is and what he does. The glory of the Lord is something simply that the best way I've ever read it is something that you ultimately have to, to point to. It's a weightiness. It's the reality of the, the culmination of all that God in his, is and his love and mercy and justice and holiness and righteousness. It's all that who he is lived out in all of what he does. That's his glory. And in the 2 Corinthians 3, Paul, right before this verse, in verse 318, chapter 3, verse 18, look at this. I get excited about this. You're probably ready to go to lunch. I get excited about this. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, right before he gets to verse 18, listen to what he says. He says, Now the ministry of death carved in letters of stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end. Will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was a glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of, the glory, because of all the glory that has surpassed it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will that what is permanent have glory. So Paul's sitting here telling the Corinthian church that before the gospel, before the work of Jesus, before the cross, the law that God had given Moses had a degree of glory to it. There was a glory that showed the righteousness and the justice of God in the law. But how much more glory has come in what God has done for us in Jesus? If the law carried this much glory, how much greater glory does the gospel carry in the life of the believer? And then in chapter 4, Paul goes on to say, he talks about the gospel of the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Paul takes this sandwich in the context of what he's doing and talks about the glory of the gospel and he comes into chapter 4 and he talks about the glory of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in between, he talks about us beholding the glory of the Lord. What is it that we have to do? What is our chief responsibility in this process of sanctification enabled by the work of the Holy Spirit? Our chief responsibility is in our life to behold the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ in the gospel. That's what we do. That's what Paul is saying. Our chief responsibility is to behold with our hearts and with our eyes and with our lives the glory of what God has done for us in the gospel. The law revealed God's glory and its righteousness. The gospel reveals God's glory and his righteousness and his grace. And the cross reveals God's righteousness and his satisfaction of his justice. But his grace reveals his mercy and his making the means for salvation for those of us like me who only deserve God's wrath because of our 
sin. The gospel reveals God's wisdom in devising a plan that satisfies all of his righteousness and all of his justice while not compromising his love and his mercy and it glories in his wisdom and in his grace that does such a thing. And the gospel pulls together all of God's attributes, all of God's work, all of God's glory in such a way that his righteousness, justice, mercy, wisdom, faith, grace, all of his forgiveness is on display. And Paul says that when we behold that, when we behold that, when we cultivate a taste for that in our life, when we behold the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ in the gospel, enabled by the power of the Holy Spirit, we become transformed in the image and likeness of Christ. It's actually the gospel that has the transforming power and effect in our life, enabled by the Holy Spirit. When the truth of the gospel, when the riches of the gospel, when all that we've spent the last four weeks unpacking, when all of that becomes a tool in the hands of the Holy Spirit, real transformation begins to take place in our life. And you want to be about the business of working with the Holy Spirit to be conformed to the image of Christ? Here's what you be about. Behold the glory of God in the gospel. Behold the glory of God in propitiation and being the sacrifice that exhausts the wrath of God in your place. Behold the glory of God in expiation, taking your sin away from the presence of God for all of eternity and cleansing you from all the shame and guilt and filth that was left because of your sin. Behold the glory of God in propitiation, expiation, redemption, freeing you from the bondage of slavery to sin and death and Satan and promising you a resurrection and eternity with God and a life here free from all the laws and regulations that we used to think brought us to the presence of God and accepted. Behold the glory of God in adoption. God calling you his children. Not just saving you from his wrath. Not just saving you from your slavery to sin and death, but calling you to himself. When we begin to behold those things day in and day out, when those things begin to become the things that we wake up and begin to tell ourselves and define ourselves and understand ourselves to be declared to be, when we begin to work those things into our life on a daily basis, God says that with the power of the Holy Spirit at work in us, we will be transformed here and now to live the life he has called us to live, transformed into his image and likeness. That's the hope of the riches of the gospel. All the things that we chase, all the things that we look for, for the security and the status and the joy and the happiness and the power and the fulfillment, all those things can never really fulfill. They only leave us empty. And if we get them, they only leave us arrogant. But when our, our souls, when our hearts begin to be cultivated to behold the glory of God in the gospel, there's security, there's status, there's power, there's joy, there's peace. There's peace.